kind of an experience junkie. If there's something I haven't experienced yet and it's not going to kill me or scare me to death, I want to do it. Where are the answers I see? Where are the hopes I need? Answer this for me. Help me to believe. Welcome back, Dragons, or if this is your first time with us, I want to say thank you so much for being with us today. Time's truly the most precious resource any of us have, and the fact that you've chosen to spend some of yours with us is humbling, and we never take it for granted. Next, I I wanted to apologize, as I missed getting you an episode last week. I got tied up in some projects and the election here in the U.S., and I just flat out missed a week. It's the first one I've missed since we began this journey together over a year ago. But we're back this week with part two of Barb's interview, and it won't be the last. Uh, The final part in her series will be next week. So let's go ahead and join the conversation. What led you? I mean, where did you go from there? Like, uh, I assume you you left as soon as you turned 18 or whenever. Where where did you go? What did you do? Well, actually, when I was 17, we moved to Arizona. We were only there for seven months. And then uh, my parents sold the restaurant that they had bought (laughs) and moved back to Galena and took over the motel again. And I did not want to go back to Illinois because moving to Arizona was the greatest thing that had ever happened to me Uh, (laughs) because, yeah, we had people looking, caring about us, and I had boyfriends. (laughs) I had several boyfriends. I I was enjoying high school, and it was my senior year, and I, I had become kind of popular, and I did not want to go back amazingly this woman that used to come into our restaurant all the time named Ursula uh, said she would let me live with her I to this day I do not know how my father ever relinquished that that control over me but he did and I got to stay with this woman from uh, November until right around my 18th birthday so yeah I was 17 and yeah it was it was great I lived in this really really tiny like eight foot by 24 foot mobile home with this woman and she's she actually helped me work through some of the issues and point out to me that it was abuse and you know when you grow up that way you think that everybody lives like this that this is normal and and so I didn't realize just how abnormal it was and she really helped me figure that out one time it was prom and I'd been asked to prom and she called my dad because she had no money and I had no money, but I needed a prom dress. And so she called my dad while I was at school to see if he would send money for me to buy a prom dress. And he said, well, her sisters aren't going to prom, so she can't go to prom either. My sisters were in seventh and eighth grade, but my dad had this weird concept of uh, fair. And so it wasn't fair that my sisters weren't going to prom. And so he felt I shouldn't go either. And I'll never forget, I came home from school with my boyfriend Ty and Ursula told me this and she was crying and she was mad and and she was like come on Barbara get mad get mad (laughs) she was very dramatic it was looking back it's kind of mortifying but uh but yeah she was like get mad and she starts taking her precious dishes because she was so poor she hardly had anything and she was throwing these dishes in the sink and then she was giving them to my boyfriend and he's throwing them in the sink and they're just you know like building up this frenzy and they're trying to get me involved in it and and finally I just kind of half-heartedly threw a dish in the sink because 
I'm like, this is how I grew up. This is what I'm used to. Of course, my dad's not going to let me go to prom. I don't know why you guys are so upset over this. I was pretty much <laughs> counting on it. Uh, but yeah. yeah, they were they were really trying to get me to be mad about it. And I just couldn't. And that was that's also part of what makes me attractive to narcissists. Not so much anymore. But back then, I couldn't get angry. I didn't have enough self-worth to know when I had been wronged. That was a, a strange uh, thing that occurred over watching other people get angry for me and now I can be that way towards other people like I will get angry for somebody else oh my god I will I could kick somebody's ass if somebody hurts somebody I love I can't so much with myself but I'm good at sticking up for others <laughs> wow yeah and it's funny because it came home years later since so we weren't allowed to show any emotion when I was growing up we weren't allowed to cry or you'll get something to cry about but we weren't really allowed to laugh or anything either we just had to fly under the radar and not let our dads know we existed our dad knew so I didn't develop that anger until years later with Eric it's kind of funny because he would always tell me that I had the right to get angry over something and I just I couldn't do it. I just, it just wasn't in me. And then came the day that my car broke down and I was heading to work and I would have been like 15 minutes early anyway. So I was just like, come get me, Eric. I, my car broke down. Just bring me to work. Well, it took him forever to come get me. And he had the, he had my kids with him. And I remember Jeff Kelly. Oh, I do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> Jeff Kelly, a friend of ours from college for the listeners, um, pulled up in a car. <laughs> That's definitely one way to describe it. Go, go on. <laughs> yeah. He pulled up and, um, and I called Eric and I'm like, what's taking you so long? And he said, well, I had to take a shower. And I'm like, I'm standing out here with green fluid leaking from my car, almost late for work, and you're taking a shower? Oh, my God. But so he puts the kids in the car. Jeff Kelly pulls up. I'm standing by his car door talking to Jeff, and I see Eric screaming down the road at, I don't know, 70 miles an hour down Harrison Square. And I see my kids, both of them, in the front seat of my tiny little Honda CBCC. You might remember that car. I remember it. <laughs> and he pulled into that driveway at that Texaco going so fast, he slammed on his brakes and he literally slid. And he slid towards me so fast that he, he could have amputated my legs. He almost hit Jeff Kelly's car with me in between. And I watched my children slam into the windshield of the car, both of them their hands on the windshield and I lost my ever loving mind. I yelled at him <laughs> I so loud, so hard. people were coming out of buildings and Jeff, <laughs> Jeff decided to leave <laughs> wisely. And oh my God, I was so mad. And he brought me to work and dropped me off and then called me about a half an hour later and asked if I was okay. And I said, I said, yeah, I'm doing better. And he said, I, I just want to tell you, I'm so proud of you for getting so angry with me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was just like a, a pivotal moment that it was safe to be angry at him with him. And, and he, he knew he deserved it. And he was so happy that I had, I had been able to express it. Nothing like seeing your children, flung into a mm -hmm. windshield while almost being amputated <laughs> you know that'll that'll piss somebody off i think 
Yeah, yeah, you're you're right. It, it will. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but he's always been so open to to sharing the good, the bad, the ugly emotions. So that that gave me permission, and he's probably semi regretted it ever since. <laughs> oh, I am sure of that. <laughs> but there was some good that came out of it. Now you you were able to, you know, be angry when you need to. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of times we find silver linings in, in terrible situations. I, I try to. So, when you were out of high school, did you stay in Arizona? Did you go to college? Did you, where, where'd you go from there? Okay. So, um, graduated high school and then I, I was, uh, I got my own little apartment. It was a studio apartment above these people's garage and they rented. It was $175 a month. I remember because I was only making like $300 a month and I was barely subsisting. But, uh, but yeah, I lived there. And then um, I met this man that got me pregnant. And so I had to marry him basically. And that was my first husband. And my father came out, my father and my stepmother came out for the wedding. And that's when I, uh, my father had seen, I don't know what, maybe he saw men's shoes. Maybe we didn't hide Dwayne's toothbrush enough. I don't know. I don't know what happened, but he saw something that let him know that I was not living there by myself. And uh, I said, well, as long as you know this, you might as well know that I'm pregnant and all hell broke loose and he he was so angry he left he went and talked to the priest because we were raised catholic and the priest told him that we all make mistakes and that he needed to forgive me like jesus forgave him of his sins and so he came back and uh he did oh he one of his words that he said when he found out i was pregnant was why should i give you away you've already given yourself away uh, certain things always stick with you, um, but he did decide to give me away the following day, and the day after my wedding, I started throwing up during my second trimester, and I ended up losing 30 pounds while pregnant with my daughter, because that that just, I don't know, it just, it just did something to me, that whole thing, and I just threw up for sometimes eight, ten times a day, and it was bad. They were going to hospitalize me, but she was born healthy, and all was well. So yeah, married Dwayne did not go to college yet. I went started taking a couple classes when she was like two, maybe. I got an English what? and a so how'd you get from Arizona to Arkansas? Well, my ex-husband's parents moved out or uh, actually went out to Arkansas on a trip, really liked it, bought this plot of land, said if you go out there and help us, then we will help you buy a home. So that's how we ended up uh, packing it all in and moving there. Yeah. Now I've got to ask you this because I, I remember I remember a story, and I'm not sure where it fits in the timeline, but I, I'm really interested for you to retell it if you remember it. Um, you had now you had uh, when you moved to Arkansas. Did you have both your children at that time, or yes, just my son was one and my daughter was six okay and now so you had gone through uh the birthing process <laughs> however that 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 was for you but you helped somebody else do that once oh, on, yeah. one, once upon a time right i did uh, i did uh my friend sibel was pregnant with her second child and she was going to have a midwife deliver the baby and i knew the midwife a little bit 
and I agree, I offered to help the midwife because I was very intrigued. I'm, I'm kind of an experience junkie. If there's something I haven't experienced yet and it's not going to kill me or scare me to death, I want to do it. So why not, you know, help deliver a baby? Well, the midwife uh, was in the Peace Corps and she got, it was during the Ethiopian crisis, so 80s, mm -hmm. and she got called to Africa. And so Sabelle's like, well, you want to deliver my baby? And I was like, sure, because I was, what, 21 <laughs> and really stupid. Oh, and you know how you think, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, I can do this. So I, it's not like I took it that flippantly. I was very serious about it. I went to the library all the time. I got every book on delivering babies that could be had. I researched it. I knew that one in four babies will have the cord wrapped around its neck when it's born. Um, so I was prepared for that. Uh, I, I actually told Sabelle that I had read that a good position to have a baby is on your hands and knees. I told her this and she was like, oh no, that's not happening. <laughs> but as it <laughs> happens, that's how it happened. <laughs> she I got the call at like 11.30 at night, and I raced over to the house. I boiled water. I boiled shoelaces to use to tie the umbilical cord. I boiled, um, I sterilized some scissors and knives, and I was all prepared. And she wanted to have the baby in a candlelit room with soft music playing, and that's what we had going on. Her husband at the time um, was terrified just terrified so he was like an unseen force was holding him up against the wall he his hands were up it was seriously like like a ghost was holding him up against the wall the entire birth um, she ended up on her hands and knees and it was at that point it was really hitting home to me and I was like oh my god <laughs> there is a big butt facing me <laughs> for one thing and uh and I, I decided to put it in terms of like a horse or a cow giving birth. I'm like, this is just a colt. It's just a little foal. It's no big deal. <laughs> While this butt is facing me, um, I did not know at that time that it is common for women to defecate. She did that. Ah. Yes, mm -hmm, it, was, mm -hmm. it was great. And uh, she had told me before the baby was born that she wanted Alan to catch the baby. But I will have you know that once the head comes out the rest comes out quickly at least it did in her case it was like a football sure. had been thrown at me there was no calling in another catcher it was i was there yeah. uh the cord was wrapped around the baby's neck I, as soon as the baby was crowning i just instinctively knew and so i whispered to alan and and as soon as the baby was born he quick reached down and unwrapped the cord and the baby had been this strange color and as soon as he did that the color whooshed up through the baby and and she was a a normal color after that i will say that sabelle if you've got to deliver a baby and you're 21 years old it's she was so good she did not scream at one point she yelled out thank you baby jesus <laughs> which was the last thing i'd be thinking while i was in labor but yeah, so she was really good, and the baby was born, and I, it's funny because I went out on the couch while she went in the shower like nothing had ever happened. She could have at least, you know, moaned for a good hour afterwards or something, but she just got up. She goes in the shower. She's taking a shower. I'm sitting on the couch, and then I just started shaking. Like, I was just physically shaking. The whole thing had, the adrenaline had finally gotten to me or something. I don't know, but I was shaking, and she came out, and she's like, 
I want to name the baby after you. And I'm like, oh, hell no, you're not putting Barbara. No, <laughs> that name means stranger. It's a derivative of barbarian. It means stranger, foreigner, dark person. Yeah, so who would tack that on a baby? I don't know, but I was like, no, don't do that. What's your middle name? Nope, you're not doing that either. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so she named the baby Bethany because it was December 12th. It was close to Christmas. And she so she chose to name the baby Bethany. And she paid me with a bunch of coupons. And that was that. Was that. Wow. Oh, I, I, I have a few questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so first... Uh, how how old was she at the time? She was uh, maybe a year older, probably 22. And she had already had a child who was two. And in fact, that child came in while the baby was being born. And so I was kind of trying to comfort her daughter at the same time, you know, saying, it's okay, mommy's going to have a baby. And you know, her daughter did really well too, but yeah, if she wouldn't have had a child to begin with, that she said the birth was really easy, I probably would have been a little more trepidatious, but, but. Sure. Well, you know, and, and that, that was actually my, my next question was, was this the first baby or, or not? And so that you answered that. Um, and, and sometimes the second child is, is even easier than the first. Uh, that was not the case in my wife's uh, situation. Uh, oh, <laughs> Her second one was a 40 hour labor and we did that one with the midwife. So that was uh, fun. But we had, we had, uh, we had uh, our, our oldest Dylan, he was there for the whole thing. And, and, uh, you know, he wasn't watching the whole time. I mean, it was 40 hours. Worth, oh, you know? yeah, he yeah. To, did he, did he actually hey. see the baby being born? He did. Oh, cool. He did. Uh, he did. He saw the baby. He, uh, he saw the blood and everything. And, um, you know, I, I you know, as you know, you know, my family, uh, mm -hmm. well, uh, all chair. my, well, yep, that's right. Being back here, we had, you know, we were all born at home. And so I was there for all of those births. It, it, you know, it was for, you know, and, and I did not pressure my wife to do this, you know, and when we, when we first met, my wife said, you know, I'm, I just want you to know, after hearing your mother's story about having all of her kids at home, I just want you to know, I'm not having my baby in a box under the stairs. <laughs> and, and I said, I said, baby, I'm behind you a hundred percent. However you want to have, have your, your, you know, have our children. That's great. Uh, you know, the, the irony of that is the funny part about that is, is that, um, you know, with our first, our first child, we, we had, uh, Dylan in, in the, uh, in the hospital. And then the second one, she wanted to do a natural home birth as best possible. Of course, that's again, or at the time it was against the law in Alabama. Oh, so yeah. we couldn't have. We couldn't have him here. Uh, so we had to go to this place called the farm in Tennessee, which is a well, a, a really well-known place. It's actually where the, the uh, largest commune in all of America uh, existed oh. uh, at one time. Uh, and, and that's a whole different story. But what I was going to get to was, is that the house that we actually had our second Raylan in, um, she was actually on a futon or, or actually it was a birthing chair by the time we were all done, but it was positioned um, in a certain place in this house. And the irony is, is that it was underneath the staircase going up to the second floor. <laughs> <laughs> and we got it all on video. Uh, and so afterwards I was like, Hey baby, I just want to show you something that, uh, you know, there wasn't a box involved, but you absolutely had your children <laughs> under the stairs. Oh my gosh. Be careful what you say. You're not going to do. <laughs> right. 
Isn't that isn't that right? I've I've learned that that the declarative definitive sentences oh. like I will not do this are not things that I want to make because <laughs> I always end up uh, eating those words when I do that. Yeah, so. I'm with you. You learn you learn these things. You went to a library to research all yeah. this. Now for for the audience um, out there, a library <laughs> is a place where they have a lot of books and it's kind of like an internet, but it's more true. Was that enough training? Like, did you feel like, did you feel comfortable enough with just, or did you go visit some doctors or no. some other midwives or just straight up? Hey, the encyclopedia says this, we're good to go. I, yeah, yeah. I probably read, I did. I read tens of books, you know, 20 books, something like that, whatever they had, I read. And so it's, and, you know, with that cockiness of a 21-year-old just feeling like, how bad can it be? I delivered my baby and, you know, she's <sighs> already had a baby. How bad can it be? She's just going to pop out a baby. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. To this well, day, for, I look for... back and I'm like, oh, my God. how? <laughs> what was I thinking? Well, well, you know, most of history, that's the way it worked. Yeah. See? Yes. And I read... You know, Native Americans would, uh, some tribes just dig a hole. The wife digs a hole or the woman digs a hole and lines it with rabbit fur and squats over the hole. Yeah. And then goes back to work after yes. they're done. There is a, a history of that. Uh, you know, it's really only in the last few hundred years that we've uh, changed it and sterilized it and made it different. Uh, made it a medical procedure instead of a natural thing. Yeah. You know, and that's not to say that life-saving uh, techniques are, are, are not uh, needed sometimes. Mm -hmm. They really, really are. Uh, but there's a, there's a whole lot that goes into that. But at 21, you delivered a, a child. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, that, that is <laughs> yeah you chose it. Things I also, uh, as far as my experience as a nurse, I also uh, was the nurse for my doctor who performed a vasectomy on my ex-husband. I was his nurse for that i have no medical training <laughs> uh okay so um do you not know that story i no, i i well you know i i forget things too sometimes uh, i that, that actually rings a bell but the question that i have for that is how do you become the nurse for that well i had the coolest doctor when my son was born dr ray hatch his name was i've actually looked him up because he was just really great and uh and i told him i didn't want any more kids and he said well it's a lot easier for the man to get fixed than it is for the woman because it's a, such an internal process for the woman and so many more things can go wrong and la 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 yep. and i said oh my my husband will never agree to such a thing well after my son was born dr hatch pulled my husband aside and talked him into it what do you know? And so he, he told me that if we were to come to his office after hours, five o'clock on a Friday, after all the actual nurses had gone, <laughs> that if I assisted, that he would perform the surgery for $75 because we didn't have insurance at the time. And so that's what that's what happened headed over there on a Friday and um, and it was actually a really interesting procedure with like, I don't think there was any blood. Maybe like yeah. the, the, when he pulled out the vas deferens tubes, uh, there was there was very little blood on them. It was just like making a little slit and pulling a spaghetti noodle out <laughs> of the slit and, <laughs> and cutting and cauterizing and putting it back and pulling out the other one through the same slit. And seriously, it looked like spaghetti noodles. And that was that. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, yeah, that's... Huh, that. I, that's am amazing that, that you could go 
get into that that whole scenario like that <laughs> so when uh when did i, I guess we met in college mm-hmm. and uh and i and i knew you and I, um when you were w- with Dwayne and then then when you guys split up uh how how was the divorce from a possible narcissist how hard was that um it was actually he he had a very um bulldog lawyer and i had a very conciliatory lawyer in fact he warned me that he was conciliatory and i guess i didn't mean i didn't know that that meant he would just pretty much roll over and piss himself every time the my ex-husband's lawyer looked at him but that's kind of how how it happened and uh, yeah it was it, my ex-husband was always threatening to call the police if i wasn't you know there with the kids at the exact time and things like that but otherwise it, it wasn't that bad once i got away from him it was it, i was just so happy to be away from him <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I, I, I did dance around carefully on how I proceeded with everything so that he wouldn't have the urge to take me back to court or anything like that. And yeah, you know, he, he said that I could do all the driving down to Harrison because he would be driving Kale up for, um, for soccer games on the weekends, which he did like twice. So that was, I did a lot of driving, but whatever to keep the peace. Wow. So when uh so did is that when you decided to go back to school i mean what what was it like i mean were you were you working during this time did you already have some skills and then you kind of became a single parent at this point and like how did you navigate that what happened was we moved out to arkansas i did i have a job at the time i probably did i've always worked but um but i decided to take this weekend class at uh, that I think it was through North Arkansas Community College um, to help you decide a path for your life, what career would be good for you. And I, I decided to do that. And it involved a whole bunch of tests and like IQ tests and, and speed and accuracy tests and how fast can you put these pegs in these holes and, you know, a whole bunch hmm. of stuff like that. And so I went through the whole, the whole thing. And then uh, the teacher, her name was Judy Nichols. Um, I don't know why I can remember stuff like that. And I can't remember what I ate for lunch, Elliot, but there you have it. Uh, Judy Nichols, she, she pulled me into her office and she said, you scored so high. This is going to sound like I'm bragging, but, but I'm just saying, this is what she said. You scored so high on all these tests. You can be whatever you want. You could be a lawyer. You could be a doctor. And I'd never had anybody tell me before that I was smart or anything. And so hearing her tell me these things, I was like, what, really? And, and so she basically helped me get registered at NAC. And, and once I was on that track, I was good to go. So that's how I got there. Yeah, just that one person. And I've always tried to be those, you know, I said, Ursula is the woman that took me in and she inspired me to take in kids. So that's why I've taken in at-risk kids. She inspired me. And then that Judy Nichols inspired me to, to help people learn their strengths and to help them find a, a, you know, a career path that would be good for them. And yeah, they, they inspired me to do that. So you, you uh, chose teaching, didn't you? Education? I did. Yeah. After I was, uh, I, after I finished my degree and my degree, by the way, I commuted from Harrison to, um, UCA in Conway, which was a five hour a day trip down that mountainous road. Uh, you know it well. 
And don't I? Though? I did that for three and a half years to get my degree. So that was that was a big ordeal. But then I ended up getting the job at O'Keefe and Associates, and that's when I found out I kind of liked working with people and their resumes. And you know, I did so many resumes for my candidates, and I would interview them and I would help them go through the interview process and all of this kind of stuff. And I kind of enjoyed that aspect of it. And so uh, when this position came up years later, for uh, uh, teaching a school to work program for high school seniors at risk kids, it really fit into my my wheelhouse, as they say. So that was that was that's what I did. I helped kids get jobs. I I helped them interview, learn how to interview. I helped them learn leadership skills, and I taught them the Myers Briggs so that they could learn about other people on a different level and and find out what careers would suit their personalities and that kind of thing. And so, yeah, O'Keefe and Associates helped me as well. Now, uh, I, I'm I'm going to circle back around to a couple things uh, in a minute, but but first, I, I want to see if if one of the two of us remembers this. Uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure I visited you at one of your schools for, um, uh, where you were doing the, uh, trying to help them get jobs and, and teaching them leadership skills. Did, didn't I come in and talk with your class one time? Do you, do you remember that? don't but i can definitely see it happening because i did rope several friends into doing that <laughs> <laughs> i like i remember i like it because there would be no reason for me to to be in any of the schools or any of the areas where you worked except for this but i remember you uh i remember i remember you uh, and i didn't remember this till just now so this is all spur of the moment for me as well uh but i seem because i i remember i remember uh, it was right after I had, had met my wife and, and you were bragging to them about, uh, you know, how I had met someone who looked like just like Alicia Silverstone yeah. or something. So um, <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh, I okay. could see well, that. that. I, I did pull people in to, to mock interviews with my kids. That's probably mm -hmm. what I had you do. Although I did have people come in and talk about their jobs, too, to kind of give kids uh, insight into other careers that they that they might consider. I had my friend Stephanie come and tell them what it was like to be a rock and roll star. Ah, yes, Stephanie. I remember her. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's, let's circle back around to, uh, O'Keefe and Associates, uh, real quick. Actually, you know what? Uh, yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's talk about O'Keefe and Associates for just a minute. Uh, how, how did you find that job? So for, for those of you who don't know, O'Keefe and Associates, uh, they build themselves as the high-tech headhunters. And this was really just at the very beginning of the information technology boom, uh, at, at least where I came into the picture with you. But, um, you, you know, this was what was the mid-90s, I guess, probably. Yeah, yeah, uh, and it really was before... The um, it was before big companies had their own recruiters, really, uh, to recruit people. That wasn't really I mean, that that kind of changed as uh, as the <laughs> the industry moved along. But at that time, you know, they used a lot of recruiters to to get positions for just about everything. Uh, and so John O'Keefe, uh, who really is a legend in that industry, mm -hmm. he had created uh, he'd, he'd built a business in Austin, Texas. And then when he was successful enough, he decided, you know what, I want to go back home to Northwest Arkansas, built himself a nice uh, place, you know, in the mountains. And then he just did something that is today uh, commonplace and has become more so during the pandemic. He telecommuted. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, like yeah. that was one of the uh, I mean, that was a remote. I mean, he had an office, but it was remote work. You know, it was it was 
the first time I remember seeing a company do that kind of thing. Uh, it, how did you get hooked up with O'Keefe and Associates? I think I saw an ad in the newspaper, honestly. And really? I went and I interviewed, and then he had me take a test, and that test uh, asked questions that you would have to answer from your point of view, and then from the point of view uh, of an ideal candidate for that position. I remember because one of the questions was, uh, when the cat's away, the mice will play. And yeah, the ideal candidate would say, oh no, <laughs> but come on, <laughs> be realistic. But anyway, <laughs> he asked me after I took the test what I thought of it. And I said, I, I don't know, I said something derogatory, but he said, I designed that test when I was at <laughs> Harvard. Uh, Harvard. <laughs> he went there for labor relations or something, but he designed that test. I was like, oh, geez. Uh, well, he, you know, he gave us all those tests. Yeah, do you remember it? Yeah. I do. I remember taking the test. I don't remember the the questions. I remember that there. I remember the results more than anything else. Uh, I it was interesting because it was the first time I had been so tested so thoroughly in regards to career and whether or not I might be good or bad. I do remember him saying uh, afterwards. You know, he showed me the results and stuff, and and uh, and I said, "Well, what does it tell you?" And it says it, it tells me that you may not be motivated by money enough to be good at this job. Really. Interesting. Yes, yes. He told me yeah. that uh, that I wouldn't be a recruiter, but I would be an excellent um, administrative assistant sort of person, like Gal Friday kind of thing. And then I ended up placing 13 people in 13 months. Just saying. You were amazing at that job. I don't know how you did it. I, like So to, to fill the audience in here, Barb had gotten this job at uh, O'Keefe and Associates and we were friends and we were talking and, and she, you know, she, Barb has always been uh, one of my biggest champions and I've always appreciated that about her. And in, in, it's completely due to you that I got that job. Oh, it uh, is. Because, yeah. You know, Especially if no you show up late it. to the interview. Way to make me look bad, <laughs> Elliot. Uh, well, I, I honestly don't remember that part of it. You don't? Uh, no, uh-uh, no. Did, did I get lost? I don't remember, but you were late, and I was so embarrassed oh. because I had <laughs> pitched you so hard. <laughs> well, I apologize for that. Uh, I may have made up for it in the interview. He seemed to like me. Oh, he loved you. You, oh my God. <laughs> he loved you, and that's how you got away with not making a placement for as long as you did and not hearing the wrath that I used to get from him. <laughs> There is no doubt about that. I was a terrible recruiter. I was awful. You love talking to uh, people. I, I I do. I like talking to people, but there there were there were some challenges there. You know, I didn't understand what I was talking about, and he thought that that was fine. Uh, and you know, you just need to learn how to to talk the lingo yeah, or whatever. Yeah. You know, and uh, you know, I'm I I almost made one placement, <laughs> and then it all fell oh, apart. I remember. And, and it was so, you know, and it was a placement I'm, I'm positive he gave me because he didn't think I was, anyone was ever going to fill it. Um, and, and he told me as much later, I mean, after we had the deal, what we thought was done, uh, you know, he told me, he said, you know, I honestly didn't think anybody would ever fill that position. So, you know, he was really happy that I, that I had, but then, you know, in the weird way that the universe works, one of the references that I checked said, went, oh, this guy is looking for work and he hired him out from underneath us. Oh. And so I never oh. made a placement. And I didn't know that's that, what happened. 
that's what happened. Uh, yeah, I, I'll never, I'll never forget the company uh, that that stole him from me. On uh, you know from from that placement, I'll never. I, I mean, I know the whole. It was because that I because that didn't go through. I think that was the end of of my confidence in being able to Aww. do it. And it, uh, it it's not a bad thing. I learned so much there. Like uh, I I cannot overstate how how influential the things I learned there mm-hmm. really are. Oh, yeah. You know, he, he, you know, some of my philosophies on work and, uh, and corporate life, uh, stem directly Ditto. from the things I, I learned from him. Uh, I've, you know, I, the, the most important thing I ever learned from him was it was how to stay employed no matter what. And, and it was simply an article that he had written that I had read uh, that he had recommended I read, of course. Uh, uh, but it was an article that he had, had written is, you know, if you if you want to be employable, uh, then you have to do a great job wherever you are, because if if you do a great job wherever you are, nobody can say bad things about you. Mm-hmm. And I, I took that to heart. I, I realized that, that was where I realized that you could go somewhere and even if things didn't work out the way you wanted them to as long as you did a really great job you were going to people when they checked references were going to have to say well he did a great job Mm -hmm. even if they you know and i I learned how to plan my day you know he used to to make us have take the first 30 minutes of the day and plan our day out in our little planners that he had for us you know what am i going to do today you know that kind of thing and even though i don't sit down today and write that out every morning when i get up i make a mental list of the things that i need to do today and the things that i want to do accomplish and then that's always in my mind so now i do it virtually in my mind uh, instead of writing it down on a piece of paper i probably should it'd probably be better for me but um you know some of the habits i picked up there were so applicable for the rest of my life uh, i'm just so very thankful that i got the opportunity uh, even though i failed miserably uh, at being successful at that uh, for sure but it was also where i learned about the information technology field. right and you know, Ditto. you know that was i didn't know anything about it well you know what i i left there going man if i go take a few tests i can yes. be an administrator and make thirty thousand dollars a year man i'd never need money again i'd be so rich thirty thousand dollars a year really (laughs) you know it's the same conversation i i saw these people making good money you know 40 to eighty thousand a year and so i would go home and i i would ask my candidates i'd say how did you get here and then i would go home and i'd share that with eric and i'd be like we're getting this book and this book and he would he we would just buy those big thick Microsoft books. He would study it on a weekend, take the test on Monday, pass it, and he got all kinds of certified. But I wouldn't have known about that had I not worked there. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. And it's one of the things we try to do on this podcast is highlight uh, not necessarily the kismet of things, but uh, how everything can work in your favor if you if you take a look at, you know, like if you really watch it. And, and you, one of the things that that we were able to do from that experience, I mean, you, you were a, a, a really good recruiter, uh, but it was really hard on you, you know. You know, um, if the job was a, wasn't, he was. He was so hard on me, and I, I know we've had these conversations in the past, but but he let you get away with murder, and he would scream bloody murder at me because my phone time wasn't good. But meanwhile, I was making place uh, like a placement a month. Yeah, you were amazing at it. Like, it, it just... 
uh, you were really, really good at it. And I was really not. Uh, and that, then he would, and it's funny too, because, uh, in this particular situation, you and I, uh, we have such very different experiences in the exact same office. Like, I mean, we just, I mean, we sat across from each other, basically, yeah. you know, I mean. Well, you were I mean, male, and I definitely think that worked in your favor. <laughs> I, I don't doubt it. And, and I've always been really lucky in that my communication skills have been pretty good in getting me out of trouble. Yeah, and yeah. So, you know, and, and he would tell me that my phone time wasn't good enough. And so then I got my phone time up, you know, and I remember when I quit, when I left, you know, I, I, I told him, I said, look, I, I think it's time for me to leave. Uh, and I didn't really have anywhere to go yeah, or anything else. Yeah, felt bad for, for still being there. I, I just, I could see that I wasn't, I wasn't performing. Yeah. And I, I was, I didn't, I don't, I didn't know what I was missing, but I did know that I, I hadn't been able to figure it out. And so I, I felt bad because, you know, he, he, I mean, we didn't get paid a lot of money on a, on a base there, but 18,000 um, a year. Uh, <laughs> that's, I think I made $1,500 a month. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, you know, and so that that was what the the base was or whatever. And since I never made a placement, I never got any commissions. Oh, you made a whole hundred dollars. Uh, when I talked to other recruiters <laughs> and found out that they were making a percentage of the percentage, and that could yeah. equal thousands of dollars. Oh my God! Yeah, I had I had other yeah. recruiters telling me I was being robbed. Did you? Oh yeah. I wouldn't doubt you were, you were really pretty good at that. There's no doubt. Uh, and I, and, and I wasn't, but I learned a lot and, and I, I made some good friends. Ian's a great guy too. Yes. So, you know, one of the, the, the funny things that I remember from there that John, I hated that job, mainly John so much that I would wait outside the office door until exactly eight and go in. I would not want to be there any minute longer than I had to. And one day he told me that I had a seven 11 mentality. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> Which nice. was quite the burn. Um, but, you know, I became a teacher and guess what? I was putting in like 60 hours a week. When you love what you're doing, when you're making a difference in the world and stuff, you you put in the hours. When it's an actual career, when you feel like you're being respected and rewarded accordingly, you know? So, yeah, but that 7-Eleven mentality was, <laughs> that, that always stuck with me. What an amazing journey Barb has had. Being a stand-in midwife at 21 years old, commuting five hours a day to get her degree while being basically a single mother, finding success in the world of high-tech headhunting. You know, journeys don't run in the straight line we think they should, and if they do, we might be missing something. Tune in next week when we get to the final conclusion of Barb's interview with us. And as always, don't forget, you might be plain and you might be ordinary, but you're a dragon. And we can't wait to hear your voice in this world. Well.